What might it be like if we did business as though we actually belong to the living world? Given what we have in common, and given where we think we differ, how can we invent stuff that takes the best possible care of all of us? What if we had schools where it was better to learn than to get into Oxbridge? But what if everybody gets to have an education that supports and transforms their lives and gives them the ability to live well? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Gil Friend. Gil is the founder, chair, and CEO of Natural Logic Inc. and Critical Path Capital, which advises leading companies, communities, and investors on the value-driving sustainability strategies. Gil has been a noted sustainability pioneer for nearly 50 years and is widely considered one of the founders of the sustainability business movement. He was named an inaugural member of the Sustainability Hall of Fame by the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. I really appreciated this conversation, particularly on the heels of the conversation I had with Cordell Jacks an episode ago. Jill says that he's sometimes referred to as a sustainability OG. He's been in sustainability for many years, and you'll see from this conversation that there is this sense that we need to go beyond sustainability. Actually, it's more than a sense. It's saying that sustainability is boring and that it doesn't serve our purposes anymore, that we need to move more towards regeneration. I understand that many people in the audience of this podcast are in education, and this is yet another effort to try to bridge between regeneration experts, regeneration professionals, people doing the work, and education to open up that conversation so we can go beyond school. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com, and I'll leave space for my conversation with Gil. Hi, Gil. It's wonderful to speak with you. My morning, your evening, uh, we were put in contact with Cordell, who was a guest on the podcast uh, not too long ago, a few episodes ago. And I'm really keen to continue the conversation that we started last week and just to get to know you a little bit better in your thoughts, but but also the work that you've done in this field that uh, you're a veteran of. Um, so I'll start off with the question I ask everyone, which is who are you and what story do you want to tell? Um well, thanks, Benjamin. Who am I is already a story, I guess, isn't it? Um, I'm a um, I'm Gil Friend. I live in Berkeley, California, raised in New York City, came to California, you know, 40 some odd years ago for what was going to be a year and never left. Uh, love the creative uh, ferment that lives here. Um, I'm, I am I I guess what I'm I, I guess I'm what's called a social entrepreneur. I'm a lifelong social entrepreneur. I've been building enterprises that matter. Uh, in in non-governmental space, government uh, and private business. Um, the story started for me um, 51 years ago. I was a 23-year-old kid and I ran away from home to join the circus. So the circus was Buckminster Fuller's world game. Bucky was, you know, was probably best known as the inventor of the geodesic dome, but he was also a deep and profound uh, observer and analyst of industrial society and human possibility. And the world game was something he constructed. He said, instead of doing war games like armies do to simulate how to kill people more effectively and have the blue team beat the red team, he said, let's have a piece, let's have a, a world game where the object of the game is a world that works for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. So I heard that and said, sign me up, man. I'm in for that. And we spent a month 
uh, and a deep dive uh, looking at global scale at 10 fundamental issues, energy, food, housing, healthcare, transportation, education, a number of others. Uh, in every case, uh, defining as carefully as we could, what would a successful world look like? What would it have to include? What are the numbers, the tech, not, not just the technologies, but the scale of action? I worked on food and agriculture. How many people, how much food is needed, how much land is needed to grow it, what's needed to make that possible? And the stunning takeaways from each of these 10 groups working independently was that there's no necessary physical barrier to human success and well-being on this planet. People aren't hungry. The reason for hunger is not that there's not enough food on the planet. It's not that we don't have the capacity to grow enough food. There are other reasons for that. Um, so that was one lesson. And the other lesson was that even though we were taking a very uh, you know, a global scale, whole systems, look at this thing, again and again, the strategies that emerged were small scale, locally based, adapted to place. So that's where my journey started. I uh, co-founded an organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, um, originally headquartered in Washington, D.C., still going to this day, which was a, an urban ecological economic development think tank, looking at how can cities and communities within cities prosper ecologically. Uh, I built was probably the first rooftop, rooftop farm in the United States. Um, we did work on energy and um, uh, um, recycling, community economic development, uh, and that was where it began. I did a deep dive into sustainable agriculture, um, did a did a, a sojourn in the California governor's office when Jerry Brown was governor for the first time uh, uh, as a member of an uh, innovation incubator inside the governor's office that would develop programs that none of the state agencies could develop. We would develop them as pilots, prove them out, and then roll them over into state agencies as ongoing programs. Um, and uh, for the last 30 some odd years, since early 1990s, I've been working primarily with corporates, most primarily with large corporations, to help them see the strategic opportunity of embedding sustainability into the heart of their business. Never did traditional environmental consulting, not regulatory compliance, cleanup, remediation of old messes and so forth. It's all forward-focused and value-focused. What happens if you put a commitment to sustainability and human well-being at the heart of your business? What opens up in terms of strategy, value, risk reduction, um, revenue, profit, all the usual business metrics? And in doing that work with the likes of... Um, Hewlett Packard, Levi's, Coca-Cola, SunPower, um, Steelcase, uh, and a host of others, we've proven out that hypothesis again and again. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Um, some people call me a sustainability OG. That's nice, a nice badge to carry. Um, and I'm, I will say, um, um, well, let me go this way. So that's what I've been doing. Uh, lately, I'm doing a lot of work one-on-one -on -one with individual executives, entrepreneurs, policymakers, and so forth, people who are leaders and emerging leaders in the regenerative and climate space, helping them be dramatically more effective and more at peace uh, in their work in this very crazy time. Um, and the newest piece on the landscape is that I'm building a holding company 
to acquire and transform small and medium-sized companies that are climate relevant and grow them as um, ecologically grounded, community-rooted, employee-owned enterprises. So that's the, that's the trajectory and the spectrum. Uh, the story that I want to tell, the additional story I want to tell, is that like a lot of my colleagues, I've become increasingly frustrated with the sustainability game. Um, it feels like the kid with his finger in the dike trying to hold back the flood. Uh, Bill McDonough and uh, Michael Browngard talk about um, how, you know, how boring, leading sustainability designers, if you will, talk about how boring sustainability is. Uh, just preventing things from getting more or worse is not terribly interesting. Browngard's fond of saying that, you know, if I ask you, how's your marriage? And you say it's sustainable. I'm going to say, I'm really sorry to hear that. I would have hoped you would say it's vibrant and renewing and enriching and you know, growing every day. So there's that. Um, and so the story that I want to tell, the questions that I'm asking are, how might we reinvent the economy of an entire planet, this planet, and do that in one generation. And that's come more into focus in the last years, a related but slightly different question, which is what might it be like if we did business as though we actually belong to the living world? Not treat the living world nicer, not take better care of the living world, not do less damage to the living world, but recognize that we are actually part of it, that we belong to it like we belong to a family. And what happens if we ask that question? What happens if the business asks that question and uses that as an organizing principle in everything that it does? So that's the story that I'm frankly just beginning to tell. It's the story that I'm trying to explore uh, with my clients and explore in every conversation that I have. What might it be like? What might we do if we did everything we do as though we actually belonged to the living world. I want to unwrap some of these ideas. There's so much richness here that I've written down already. And before we get into answering these questions, I want to start looking at some of the words that you've used. Now, although I'm trying to stay away from the word definition, maybe we can think about a shared understanding. And you started off with asking the question, really, uh, with Buckminster Fuller of what would a successful world look like? What does successful mean in this context? What are the measures of success? What are some of the things that we can look at when we talk about a successful world and successful for whom? Well, Bucky had it pretty good in the way he laid out what he called his personal philosophy. Um, for whom? 100% of humanity. I would amend that uh, respectfully. I would say 100% of humanity and all, all the life that we share with the living world. Um, but his phrase was 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. So that's a pretty good framework to start with. It's not metrics. It's not scores on a scoreboard. Uh, but it's something that I find that when I recite that to people, um, it's, you know, it's long. It's a little bit weird. Bucky talk weird. Um, uh, uh, it takes a moment for people to get it, but then their attention shifts and, and the focus of their eyes shift. You can see the body energy shift as they drop into this holy mackerel. I've never spoken to anybody left, right, center, young, old, you name the differences. I've never spoken to anybody who said, no, no, I'm not in favor of that. 
everybody says, yeah. At the very least, they say, yeah, that would be good. Not, not everybody thinks that that's feasible, but that's where the conversation gets interesting. It's like, how might we get there? What would that take? What would that, what would that mean for you in your life, in your world, in your business, if you run a business, or if you invest in businesses, or if you on the count, city council of the city, or if you're in the legislature? What, is, what would you do? How does that fit in your world? How does that affect you? What actions could you take that could start to move us to that direction, not to make things a little less bad, which is, you know, still necessary in the short run. You know, if you cut your arm and you're bleeding, you're going to put a bandage on. Uh, but we need to not just prevent or heal injury. We need to build health and build capacity. And that's a, you know, that's a good beacon. There are others that are more specific. I've worked a lot with the natural step framework which has a somewhat different articulation of, uh, you know, call it criteria or call it more of kind of compass headings of how do we know to go in the right direction. And of course, you're taking it just a little bit further, actually a lot further than humanity, because you talk about building an economy for the entire planet, for all yeah. life. And that goes beyond yeah. the human, yeah. beyond there's the no separation. humanity, but life in general. And that's a massive shift, really, in the sense that 100% of humanity is something that most people can embrace. We talk a lot about these things like human-centered design and so forth, but this connection to all forms of life and seeing that there is no separation can often be a big jump and seem quite a challenging jump, but really it's also a shift that, that we can embrace that is actually quite simple while at the same time being complex. And I don't want to make, you know, draw binaries here, but it, it it's something new for a lot of people. It, it It is, it is, it is. And it's such a strange thing because it's, it's new. It's new in, in the, in, in modern lifetimes. It's not new in human history, right? It's new in the last 500 years, maybe a thousand years, depending on how you count, depending on where you want to draw the boundary. But if you want to look at, you know, eight to 10,000 years of so-called civilization, human settlements, or, you know, 50,000 years of human societies or a couple hundred thousand years of hominid existence, it's pretty new to think that we are not that. It's pretty new to think that we're separated. It's very new to think that the world is a machine, not something that's alive. And the mechanistic worldview that you know looks at complex systems and breaks them down into little parts and tries to optimize the parts has been very successful at certain things. I mean, it's elevated the standard of living around the world. It's given us the ability to talk to each other. You know, you and I are halfway around the planet from each other. Uh, you know, it's enabled all sorts of things, but but it's we we have fallen into a blindness, into a deafness, into an inability to recognize what we are living in the midst of. And in most of human history, we had some capacity for that. We had some awareness of that. We had some taste of that. Some people do still. Some people are, are, are reaching for it, tasting it, imagining it, you know, uh, trying to get to that. People know this in their bodies when they walk out of the city and set foot in the forest. And so this idea of sustainability is also a word that has different sides to it, because if we think about sustainability from the point of harmony, perhaps what happened before, say, the, the scientific revolution or so forth, there was a certain amount of, of balance or, or harmony uh, of the way we, we interacted, interacted with the natural world. But now sustainability means some 
perhaps weirdness of, as you mentioned, not trying to do harm or trying to make sure that future generations have what they need, it's still very much extractive. Um, what future generations need rather than how do we give back to life? How do we give back as life? And yet it's still a word that attracts people because it's better than what might be a little bit behind that. And, and people are still excited by the sustainable development goals. How do we work with these nuances and these complexities behind sustainability, which does so much good, but at the same time, so much harm because it could be a false road, but at the same time, it's better than the road we were on. It, it's not so much a false road. It's, you know, we, 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 we learn by, we learn step by step, you know, and sustainability was a big new idea when Gro Harlem Brundtland talked about that, uh, what was it, 40, 40 years ago now. Um, talking about sustainable development as development that meets the needs of the present without impeding the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. That's a great starting point. Um, uh, you can see how long it's taken for that to ripple through the global culture and become a commonly understood and accepted phrase and something that a lot of people embrace. Uh, you know, other people say, well, gosh, that's not enough. We need to talk about regeneration because sustainability is too, you know, is, is, is too past focused and too static. The words change, the memes change, the trends change. We build, you know, one builds on another and builds on another. So it's not there's anything wrong with sustainability. Um, and you're not going to throw out the sustainable development goals because it's got the wrong word in it. Uh, but the horizons broaden, you know, and the aspirations increase and uh, the commitments deepen. And we see that we can do something more that's not an either or, but actually is you know, powerful and uh, look, I mean, you know, focusing on regeneration doesn't limit sustainability. It actually supports it, but it says the horizon needs to be higher than just do no harm. So what might regeneration mean? And this is the million dollar question because it's a word that's been thrown around so much more the last six months to a certain extent and to a large extent, even co-opted, um, you know, corporates talk about regeneration that people throw it uh, around as if it's just the word in style, but it's, it's something that maybe perhaps we haven't always stopped to think about what it might mean. Yeah. You know, Words are challenging. Definitions are very challenging. Definitions are always contextual. They always carry enormous backgrounds of meaning with them. And, the, and we each carry backgrounds of meaning in how we listen to them and how you, you and I might hear the same word and have completely different associations with it. Um, you know, sometimes it's essential to have precise definitions if you're trying to do, you know, ratings of relative corporate performance for an investment portfolio that's committed to sustain to regeneration. You've got one task. Um, if you're trying to, you know, inspire a room full of high school students, it's a different kind of task. Uh, there's something evocative in the term also that's as powerful as the specifics and the numbers. Um, you know, for me, the 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 um, the encounter with it, the understanding of the word, the uh, you know, my engagement with the notion of regeneration was um, again a long time back. Hearing both Buckminster Fuller and Robert Rodale, who was one of the real pioneers of the American agri organic agriculture movement, talking about the regenerative capacity of the earth's living systems or the regenerative capacity of the soil, the ability of living systems to regenerate, to 
uh, regenerate their productive capacity, regenerate their health as a part of a living activity. It's like how it's like how your you know your finger heals when you get a cut. Is a regeneration process. So it's a it's a self organizing process of a living system. That in the absence of perturbations or toxicity or so forth, we'll do that. And so here we have um, a remarkable planet. You know this eight thousand mile diameter ball of rock covered with a thin film of life, powered by off planet energy from the sun that drives you know endless continuous cycles of materials that change in form and change in structure, but continue to circulate through the living systems of this planet as we grow in complexity and interaction and sometimes poetry and wisdom. Um, so regeneration means enabling that cycle to continue, enabling the solar-powered biological organization of life and meaning to continue and to continue to complexify. Um, and to do that with maximum inclusion and minimal harm. Um, you know, the deep challenge is that the current global economic system doesn't really have that factored in very well. It has a much, much narrower view of what matters and what's valuable and what, you know, what, what should be measured and what can be measured. Uh, across a very small value spectrum, which is, you know, how do we generate as much economic activity in the shortest possible time? Which is not in itself a terrible thing, but out of, but it's out of context with the whole complexity of the living world that we depend on. So, you know, um, you look at modern capitalism and um, there, you know, there, there's lots of activity around the regeneration community to reform capitalism. There are people who talk about stakeholder capitalism as opposed to just shareholder capitalism, long-term capitalism, not just short-term capitalism, regenerative capitalism, uh, multi-capitalism, um, all good efforts to try to uh, ameliorate and tune the challenges that we find in the system. But I would say that there are actually structural defects in how capitalism is, is organized that stand in the way of what we're trying to talk about here. Um, um, and unless we address those structural defects, uh, we just get change without change. We get what you call the co-optation of the term. So, you know, uh, capitalism is an enormously adaptable system. It can, it can absorb all kinds of changes that you think are not in its nature, but as long as it can continue to produce wealth, it will continue to do that. But the structural defects are very clear. Uh, this system is built on accumulation without limit. That doesn't work on a finite planet. Without limit just doesn't work. On, you know, it's built on extraction without reciprocity, uh, without, you know, without the giving back to sustain the source uh, of, of, of life and resource. It's built on alienation without care, alienation of labor from value, alienation of people from community. We can we can spend a lot of time any of these on any of these. It's built on abstraction without ground. Uh, we don't look at the wealth we generate in relation to the wealth of the living systems that sustain that sustain sustains it. Um, we look at generation without regeneration, and we and we privatize without solidarity. We dis we disconnect and dissociate wealth and resources from people and community. Uh, so the, those half dozen start for me start to become the roadmap 
of how to think about regeneration in the context of a global economy. Because it's not just plant my garden, although that's a good thing to do. It's not just um, um, you know renew vegetation and soils around the planet, which is not just a good thing to do, but a necessary thing to do to, co to, to control and cool the climate. Um, but it's also how do we build this into our economic life so that it becomes not just the decisions we make consciously, but the decisions we make automatically. But the living system that you mentioned go is a nested system in the sense that it, it's from the cell all the way to all living things and, and they're nested into one another and we grow. And without going into Gaia theory, there is this idea that the living system is, is one that uh, is coupled with the environment and lives with that environment and, and is able to, to generate itself uh, in, in connection with that environment. If we start talking about the economy, if we start thinking about how the economy is organized in terms of this extraction, not only does that go against what might be good for the living system, as we're seeing with the way the planet is also being damaged, but we're also thinking about this idea of wealth and maybe thinking about new ways of considering wealth, not just being from a monetary point of view, but also from a life-giving, life-generating um, point of view. Is there is there a way that we can rethink what capital might mean away from money away from this and and if capital is something that we have in order to generate wealth that leads to more capital can we just rethink what that might look like the idea of capital in economics is kind of like the idea of power in physics it's the capacity to do work um, capital is the organized capability to get something done and we think about capital in terms of money but capital the original term comes from from copy to from you know from the Latin term for for the head the head of cattle, which was a measure of wealth and was the basis for interest because a herd will you know will reproduce grow grow new cows, and so forth. Um, if we think about capital more broadly as the capacity to get stuff done to organize human beings to get stuff done, we see a different measure than if we think about it just as money. Um, um, you know, the, the our financial system as we have it now is organized to maximize the flow and, and accumulation of financial capital. Could it be organized around different kind of measures? But, you know, before we go off in that direction, let me just say something about, about money and its measures. One of the places we need to start, I would say, um, Adam Smith, a couple hundred years ago, said something like perfect markets depend on perfect information. Well, uh, great in theory, but we have market systems that lie fundamentally all the time in that they don't represent the real costs of what we are doing and investing in and buying. When I buy a gallon of gasoline, uh, which here in Berkeley, California is about five and a half dollars, five, five ninety US at the moment, relatively high for the US. Um, I'm just paying for this liquid that comes out of the pump into the tank of my car. Uh, I'm not paying for the uh, environmental costs that are incurred when that gasoline is burned. I'm not paying for the air pollution or the health effects of that air pollution uh, or the um, acidification and deterioration of the structure of buildings in my community. I'm not paying for the cost. Well, actually, this is less now. It used to be, as I was growing up, it would be the cost of the of the military presence to protect the shipping lanes to the Persian Gulf. Less of an issue for the U.S. right now, but very much of an issue for Europe and China and the rest of the world. None of that is in the price of the gallon of gasoline. 
uh, Rocky Mountain Institute uh, did some analysis some years ago that said that if you if you do that, if you do the whole system analysis, the price is 15 to 20 times higher. Okay. So the question is this, if I had to pay 75 to $100 per gallon for my gasoline, would I be buying the gasoline? Obviously not. Would I be driving the car that required the gasoline? Obviously not. But those costs are hidden. So the, the imaginary rational actor that economics depends on can't act rationally if he or she doesn't know what they're paying for and what they're not paying for and you know what they have to pay for at the pump and the invisible cost of what they have to pay for in their health insurance costs or their home repair costs or their taxes to support their military establishment. So that's where we got to start. We got to stop, stop lying. Um, stop subsidizing our own destruction. We spend, uh, I think, the latest World Bank and IMF estimate was something like $7 trillion a year subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Um, that's taxpayer money uh, to support private corporations that are performing currently necessary tasks but have destructive impact on humans and life. Maybe we can find a better way to do that. Maybe we don't have to pay for our own destruction, but actually, if we want to do markets, do market mechanisms that reflect true costs, that enable rational actors to make rational decisions that are in their both in their short-term and long-term interest, and start to drive toward an economy that is one that supports all life and belongs to the living world. And that goes back to what you were mentioning about the structural defects and the structures that are in place, both in terms of the political system as well as the way economies organize the distances. I mean, there, there's there's so many of these structures that need to be rethought uh, and, and organized. And, and you started also talking about place-based and, you, you know, and, and, and people talk about uh, producing and consuming locally. There's a whole logistics piece there as well. Well, here's, here's the one, here's the wonderful thing about human beings. We are enormously innovative. Uh, you know, we, we, we're marvels of creativity and innovation. We can think, we can both invent new artifacts. We could also invent new relationships, new ways of doing business, new patterns, and so forth. So, look to take the you know one concrete example that's right in front of our faces. Um, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, solar energy was really expensive. It was a niche product. It was a luxury product. It's now the cheapest form of electricity almost everywhere on the planet. Boom partly because of technology innovation, partly because of market penetration and riding the learning curve that, as, you know, that basically means that as you scale up production of something and move from niche to mass production, the unit costs go down. And now solar energy is so cheap that there are coal mines running on solar energy. How ironic is that? Um, so, you know, part of it is a process of technological evolution. Part of it, as I said before, is, is financial and policy evolution. Part of it is things as simple as urban form. I spent five years as the first chief sustainability officer for the city of Palo Alto, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, we, um, we were very concerned with, uh, we, we, we built a commitment to, uh, it was like 2016, a commitment to reduce carbon emissions for the city by 80% by 2030, which at that time was a very aggressive goal. Now, now people might think, is that all? Uh, not good enough. But that's what we did then. 
And part of the challenge was that three quarters of the city's emissions came from commuting, from people driving into work to come to the city, which is something the city doesn't have control over. So we thought a lot about that. And um, um, one of the obvious strategies is to get people out of their cars and in, in their gasoline-powered cars and into electric vehicles. And in fact, Palo Alto had, and I think still has, the highest penetration of EVs in the United States. Uh, the city, which owns its own municipal utility, was looking at how to build charging infrastructure to make it more convenient for people to drive EVs. You're not going to commute to work in an EV if you aren't guaranteed you have enough charge to get home. So looking at that, uh, but then the question arises, which is a, a more complicated one about what about other ways of organizing the commute or organizing the workforce that don't require private automobiles? So mass transit is one obvious question, but the mass, the, the, the railroad lines uh, are most of the workplaces in the city were a good distance from the railroad line. So you need feeder transportation to get there. Um, 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 looking at new development, how do you build new developments that actually don't require cars for people to live their lives? Walkable communities, uh, communities at a scale that makes individual automobile ownership and use an occasional luxury rather than a daily requirement. And this starts to get into really interesting challenges because to talk about that, you need to be talking about energy, transportation, land use, construction, policy, regional rail transportation. You know, you're talking about a bucket of different agencies that actually have to work together, which sad to say is not the usual mode that we see happen in governments and organizations. In the San Francisco Bay Area, there are probably, I forget the number, Benjamin, but... Um, it was something like 40 some odd different operating agencies and regulatory agencies that were involved with transportation for the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, that makes it really challenging to build a, re a coherent regional solution. We're trying, we're making some progress, um, but it's very different than saying, uh, I'm going to, I'm Elon Musk, I'm going to put an electric vehicle factory in Fremont, California and crank out EVs. He did, and it's great, and it's had a ripple effect through the elect through the uh, uh, the the automobile industry around the planet. But that's a technical replacement strategy for a piece of the puzzle. And I think what's a much more interesting question and challenging one for us is how do we build the whole puzzle? How do we rebuild the whole puzzle? How do we think about what is it that people really need? Um, and I. Sorry to be going so long here, but it's reminding me that I was in a transportation policy meeting in Palo Alto years back, very diverse room full of people from many different backgrounds and concerns. Um, I was huh, I was in the meeting as a guest. I was supposed to sit in the back and listen and not speak. And after two hours, I couldn't restrain myself. I raised my hand, so I really got to say something. I said, I think I've been listening to you for two hours. I think you're actually all saying the same thing. And folks turned around and looked at me kind of glaring, like, how can you say something so stupid? We obviously disagree. <laughs> I said, I think you're all saying, you, I think you're all asking a question of how can we make it easier for everybody, for anybody? How, how can we make it easier for anybody, anywhere, at any time, to be able to live their life and not have to get into a car and drive? And the room went quiet for a while and people said, yeah, yeah, that's what we're asking. 
that's a very different kind of challenge than how do I build a market competitive electric vehicle. But that's one of the kind, one of the challenges and one of the kinds of challenges that we need to engage. What is it that we're really trying to do? What is the what is the state we're trying to produce, not just the artifact, but the result that we want the artifact to support? And related to that, the question that we always ask our corporate clients is, what business are you really in? In other words, what is the value that you're delivering to your customers? Amory Lovins would famously say that, you know, that people don't want um, electricity and uh, natural gas. They want hot showers and cold beer. If I can get you hot showers and cold beer by selling you less electricity and less natural gas, that should be a cool business opportunity. But that requires the transformation of the utility business. You asked this question about what, what do people really need? And we talk about the structures, the structures that need to change. And, and it's not just in terms of the way we're organized, but it's also the discourse. It's also the discourse that, just like you said, that people are very creative and very flexible. So is capitalism. And you hinted at that. And, and, and you know, Karl Marx was saying that capitalism would end. And by the 1930s, we thought with the popular front in Europe that it might happen. But capitalism is tremendously resilient. The structures are also the mentalities and this question of what do people really need is so incredibly complex because it takes us into areas of, of accumulation. It takes us into areas of degrowth. It takes us into areas of, you know, having to change consumption patterns. And when we think about just the, the structures of discourse of, of having politicians elected or not reelected based on GDP and, and those kinds of growth numbers, what people really need is is a fundamental value shift before we can even answer that because maybe they might need different things based on the discourse that that shifts. The value shift is not that far away. Uh, I, I call me naive, but I believe that most people are relatively sensible and fair-minded uh, when they're not in extreme circumstances, um, uh, have an innate sense of fairness and want good lives for themselves and their families and their kids and their neighbors. Um, but we've been, we have fallen into a story in the post-World War II era of stuff is good, stuff makes our life better. We, you know, the, you mentioned GDP. GDP was a temporary measure developed during World War II by Simon Kuznets and other economists. They did not expect that to become the permanent anchor of economic analysis and well-being. Um, but we still use that. Uh, and, you know, we still consider money as the measure of all things. And I think it's useful and, in fact, very productive in the work we've done with multi-stakeholder diverse groups of people to invite people to talk about what they really care about, what really matters to them. We find that in that process, rooms full of people who are, you know, are close to doing battle with each other, communities that are in the process of lawyering up to support or oppose a development project or something like that. We find that when we can get people, invite people to talk about what they really care about, lo and behold, they discover there's common interest in the room. There's different interpretations about how to do that. There's different theories and policies about how to best do that. But you can, with a little bit of care and patience, you can find that common ground and then invite a different kind of creative and innovation process to say, okay, given what we have in common, and given where we think we differ, how can we invent stuff that takes the best possible care of all of us? Now, you know, that's probably easier to do in a community with face-to-face -face relationships 
than in a nation of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people. But the nations are made up of communities, um, both physical communities and you know the trend the uh, ephemeral communities of the internet and everything in between. Uh, so what am I saying with all that? I'm saying that uh, it, that we can invite a different kind of conversation. And that's challenging today in the political polarization that we see in both our countries and around the world. And yet, there are conversations that can be had across those differences. Um, one of my dearest friends now is a um, is a supply side economist, which I am not not an economist. And if I was, I wouldn't be a supply side economist. Uh, Trump voter in 2016. I didn't vote for free election, which I was not. I you know I live in Berkeley. You can guess that. Um, and um, we got introduced by a mutual friend who loved us both, and we spent some time together and discovered that we really really liked each other. We disagreed on a bunch of things, but we really liked each other. And we had fascinating conversations together of the sort that neither of us had with our friends who were like us. It was enormously enriching. We're dear friends now. We still disagree on stuff. He's changed my opinion on some things. I've changed his opinion on some things, but it's alive. Um, which is, you know, for me, it's just so much more appealing than saying you jerk and slamming the door and not, you know, having nothing to do with you. See you on the barricades. Um, sometimes we probably have to go to the barricades, but most of the time we have to sit down and have conversations with each other and discover what we might do together to nurture the kinds of communities and the kinds of world that we want to see. I want to bring this to education here because there's so many connections, because as you mentioned, we all want the same things as, as, as a civilization that is. Pretty much be happy, belong, uh, get along, have peace. Those are things that are, pre are, are pretty much across the board, 99.99% of the population. And, when, and we talk in, in schools, you can ask the, the, the care holders in a school, be the educators, the kids, or especially the parents, what would you like education to, to foster, to develop, to nurture? And in my experience and in the experience that I've had uh, with, with, with other folks who have led this, the, the words that generally come out are belonging, happiness, thriving, making friends, social, learning, and, and so forth. And, and we talk a lot about, about belonging. But when it comes down to it, there's still a fear of not getting ahead, of not getting into Harvard or not getting into, into Oxbridge or, or whatever it might be. When we talk about what we want for kids, there's still this fear yeah. of competition. And, and the system in education naturally gets us towards competition because when you think about it, it is in your interest to have everybody else in that room do really poorly on their SAT. It's in their interest to have everybody in that room do poorly on whatever high stakes exam there is because that allows you to shine. How do we get around the fact that from the age of five, we're already put in this individualized competitive space and, and that's really such an important part of the developmental years. It's a great question. And I don't have a simple answer for you. I hope you weren't hoping for one. I wasn't, believe me. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, there are schools that do it differently. There are schools that put a much higher emphasis on collaboration and learning together than on purely competitive. Um, how far into the you know, growing age of students they carry that, I don't know. 
Um, you know, I've seen that in I've seen that in grade schools. I don't know how much you see that in high schools or in colleges, but I can imagine in my mind's eye that that could happen. I know that I've had my most fun when I'm learning, when I'm learning with other people, when I'm sitting in a small group, reading and discussing things together. Uh, it was in a remarkable process. I was taught by Fernando Flores, my mentor, some years ago, where um, um, took, he, we took 30 people over the course of a day, half a day, and said, we're going to learn about China today. <laughs> a rather big topic. And what we did, he broke us up into, into groups of half a dozen people. He gave each group a half a dozen questions and said to each group, break them up, divide the questions. Each of you go off and research that question in like in an hour. You know, what's the ancient history of China? What's the history of communist revolution in China? What's, you know, what's the technology, the religion, the spiritual traditions of China? Each of you go off and come back together with each of your hour research and share what you've learned. And then each of these six groups come back together and share what you've learned in the larger in the larger circle of 30 and then discuss. Um, it's not like doing a graduate semester on China, but the degree of exposure to diversity and context and nuance and different perspectives and different interpretations of what people encountered was remarkably rich and could have only happened with people working together. We think in this... Um, modern mechanistic society. We think that command and control is the way to get things done and the way to be efficient. Uh, hierarchical organizations with instructions from the top. Um, and I've always been uncomfortable with that because of the, um, well, many reasons, but one is the cybernetic principle of the law of requisite variety, which says, basically says, you know, the, the guy or gal at the top can't possibly keep track of everything at the bottom. You have reducing valves all the way and you're losing wisdom all the way and you need complexity to manage complexity. Um, I learned this in a remarkable way. Um, I was I was scholar in residence at Bainbridge Graduate Institute uh, some years ago. And the other scholar for that uh, period of time was a U.S. Army general. Now, I've never served in the military. I come out of a anti-war tradition. Uh, I have, I have, um, you know, value judgments about the military and 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 have an assumption of a very hierarchical command structure, and um, this general blew my mind. Um, he said it's actually not like that, or at least not entirely like that. And imagine this circumstance: imagine that you're in a platoon of twenty soldiers. You've got your packs on your backs, your rifles in your hands, and you're walking down a road led by your second lieutenant. And he steps on a landmine, he's blown to smithereens, and he dies. What happens next? And he said, what happens next is that any one of those 20 people can step into leadership and number one, be competent, and number two, be trusted by everybody else. And I thought, holy mackerel, that's a remarkable achievement in human development and human capacity and human collaboration. And the furthest thing from command and control that I could imagine. And it was a lesson I learned not from my little food co-op, but from an army gen. Astonishing. Meg Wheatley, um, the uh, brilliant uh, writer and consultant in her latest book, talks about her work with military and a general who explained to her the, um, the process of what they call after-action review, AAR, in which after every mission, no matter how large or small, 
everybody involved, regardless of rank, gets together and reviews what happened and what worked and didn't work. And everybody shares regardless of position. Uh, you, you don't get to be nice to your boss. You say exactly what you think. And why? how did they come to that? He, the, 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 the general she was talking to said, we, we figured out that it was better to learn than to be dead. So what if we have, looping back to your question, sort of, you know, sort of riffing loosely on what you're asking, what if we had schools where it was better to learn than to get into Oxbridge? Now, guess what? If you learn, you have a better chance of getting into Oxbridge anyway. And Oxbridge or Harvard is a difficult standard to use because there's only so many seats and not everybody gets to go there. But what if everybody gets to have an education that supports and transforms their lives and gives them the ability to live well in whatever they wind up doing? So, no. Like you said, everybody wants belonging and happiness and thriving. Thriving is in the context of the world that we're in. But the other thought that comes to mind here, Benjamin, is that the world that we're in is changing. It's changing rapidly. The ground is shifting under our feet. And so, you know, when I think about education, I want people to develop the capacity to navigate the changing world. Uh, with respect and care for each other. I want people to develop the capacity to attune to each other um, and to what's being called for and where and and you know and where the world is going and to be able to to surf uh, or tap dance depending on the metaphor you like uh, in this changing world. It's a different it's a different mix than how do I get good grades and get into a good school? Not entirely separate but it's a different mix with a different emphasis. What do you think? To me, it's it's a question of, yeah, just this thinking beyond this individualization uh, to think, as you mentioned, in terms of how do we respond to the world, with the world, as the world, but also do it together. And I think that there's nothing that we do on our own, we never have. It's more than just standing on the shoulders of giants. It's also the environment that we live in, the the, the circumstances that we're in, the, the the temperature of the room, what we ate for breakfast, all these things impact us, and yet we're we're atomized in schools and and reduced, not just to letter grades, but just reduced. Um, and we need to think about why we're learning, why are we learning, what is the purpose of learning? And and I've thought for a number of years, if if there's no purpose to what we're learning in terms of perhaps doing good for the world, and 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 I know good is 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 a is a simplistic term, but I'm using it on purpose in, in all its simplicity. But if there's no point in in, mm -hmm. in doing in, in in doing good or what we're learning, we have to do it for good. And that's something that we do together, also hearing the voices of all of those we do good for. And and, and the voices are, are the more than human world as well. Yeah. To me, to me, it's just yeah. this this shift away from everything that we're doing individualized and and really considering why we're learning, how we're learning, and for what purpose through our responses and and the what we do. Yep. Yep. Very nice. I like that about hearing all the voices. That's lovely. Yeah. And 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 that's such an interesting my my uh, my wife is doing right now, she's doing her PhD in sustainability education. And she is specifically looking at how we we decenter mm. the human uh within the child animal relationships that are created by schools and it is this idea of those mm -hmm. 
voices that in nature, as nature, that are so important. Um, the, the post qualitative ways of of collecting data, generating data. It's actually it's not even collecting, generating data that go beyond ourselves, and and that's the, that's a massive shift. But I think that it goes along what you're mentioning. You've been saying all along about how do we how do we work with the thriving world? How do we create an economy for the thriving world? But then it goes beyond we doesn't mean we as individuals, but it means we together. And that's also quite flexible. Um, and, and education is going to have to shift considerably. And I love what you're saying right there about more important to learn than it is to go to Harvard. Uh, that that attacks so many of the hierarchical constructs that we have and the, the elitism and the competition and this and then that, which is almost um, part of nobility that we need to, to, to strike down. Now, I'll I'll just say one word in defense of hierarchy, though. As a as a you know as a as an ecologist and as a biologist, I would say that you know we we get confused about hierarchy. We don't have living systems without a hierarchy. You talked before about the nested systems of cells and organs and so forth. Um, but there's a there's a world of difference I would assert between functional hierarchy and well, let's call it political hierarchy for want of a better word. And I think one of our challenges as a culture is to distinguish those and lift up one and move past the other. Absolutely. You'll get no argument with me about, about hierarchy being part of, of, of living systems, as you mentioned. Well, I, I, I know that we're in violent, I know that we're in violent, violent agreement here. Yo, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, what what are your other thoughts or maybe things that, that we've missed? This is a little bit the et cetera section, things that are on your mind, things that are on your horizons. Well, we didn't talk much about employee ownership. Uh, we didn't talk at all about war and peace, which is just sitting here right in the background in every moment these days. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I, I've been in a bit of PTSD all week. So uh, I appreciate this chance to kind of step out and have this conversation with you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. You could also... Check out Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. Again, our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. And we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.